Good morning, everybody. It's great to have you with us this morning. Please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And uh, as we continue our series on reasons to hope, as we look at redemption and resurrection, but also the foundational nature of the resurrection to our faith as Christians, I want to begin by reminding ourselves of what happened on this particular Sunday some 2,000 years ago, the uh, particular Sunday that we now call Palm Sunday. Uh, Jesus entered Jerusalem on that particular day for the last time and in so doing triggered what we now call Holy Week, the commencement of Holy Week. And as you know the story, he comes into Jerusalem and the pilgrims are beginning to gather as they make their way into Jerusalem for Passover later that week. And as we read it in the Gospel accounts, we have this wonderful record. Jesus, very much at this point in his ministry, is at the peak of his ministry. And uh, as John's Gospel tells us in chapter 12, as Jesus enters Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday, he's coming off the back of having just raised Lazarus from the dead. And it says, as a result of that miracle, as a result of that bringing back to life of Lazarus it says that many believed in him and so consequently when he comes to Jerusalem the crowds throng around him he comes in fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah seated upon a foal a donkey the crowds gather around him they begin waving their branches and crying out Hosanna we've sung that this morning Hosanna to the one who comes in the name of the Lord save us Lord it's a direct quote from Psalm 118 And what is interesting about Psalm 118 is that when you read that quote, Hosanna, Lord, save us, the appeal to God to save, the whole psalm is in the context of a writer who is actually talking about the great adversity and opposition that he is under. And at some point in that psalm, uh, before he gets to the exaltation of Hosanna, save us, the psalm writer actually talks in terms of You will not let me die, but you will let me live. And then he goes on and he talks in the psalm and begins to describe the stone that the builders rejected is the very stone that God has made, the chief cornerstone. All of that is contained in Psalm 118. So against this backdrop of rejection and this backdrop of adversity comes the great cry, Hosanna, Lord save us. And that's the context in which Jesus enters Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday. And they begin to cry out, Hosanna, Lord, save us, at the peak of his popularity. But we know what happens, don't we? In less than a week, the mob that thronged around Jesus in less than a week turns against him. Everyone turns against him and flees. It's an incredible story, but the most remarkable thing about it is this. That when Jesus entered Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday, he knew precisely what was going to happen. And he still entered Jerusalem. Jesus knows that what lies before him is arrest, ridicule, mocking, beatings, and ultimately crucifixion. Jesus knows all of that, but he still chooses to enter Jerusalem. Why? Knowing all of that, Why does Jesus still enter Jerusalem? Because he also knows that his father God, who has ordained and planned and purposed this for his life, 
will on the third day raise him from the dead. That comes through time and time again, not only in the Gospels, but also in the letters that begin to unpack for us the ministry and what Jesus did. But here's the remarkable thing. It's not just that the tide of opinion, it's not just that Jesus enters Jerusalem and knows that the tide of opinion is going to turn against him and that things are going to get rough. It's not just the fact that he's going to face a horrible death and rejection. You see, Jesus also knows that he is going to carry the burden of the world's sin. Now, let that sink in for a moment. You see, we can experience times where people can turn against us. It can be for good reasons, it can be for bad reasons. That happens. In the case of Jesus, there is no good reason for people to turn against him. But in spite of all the suffering and all the shame that he will endure, the greatest, most powerful thing that stands before Jesus is he will bear the sin of the world and not just the sin of the world he will bear the judgment of his father God for the sin of the world let that sink in because we're talking here about someone who had committed no sin never sinned and for the first time in his life as he hangs upon that cross not only will he bear the burden of sin but he will experience the rejection that comes with sin against God Jesus is going to carry all of that But he knows that on the third day, the one that he has entrusted his soul to will raise him from the dead. So what in the world has that got to do with 1 Corinthians 15? Well, I'm glad you asked that. So open your Bibles at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 29 down to verse 34. Because Palm Sunday has everything to do with 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and specifically the section that we had read to us this morning. Because in the context of what we're talking about, the question that Paul addresses, you will remember uh, the Corinthians, or some of them were saying that there is no resurrection of the dead. People who have died in Christ will not be raised from the dead. And Paul has been pointing out the fallacy of that. And when we get to verses 29 and verse, uh, down to verse 34, Paul is now talking about adversity. He's talked about the fact of the resurrection. He's talked about the truth of the resurrection. He's talked about the foundation of the resurrection to the Christian faith. But now he actually says, this is how the resurrection influences us in the face of adversity. In the same way that Jesus entered Jerusalem, knowing that his father would raise him from the dead, Paul is taking a similar theme when he's saying that when tough times come, you can actually count on the fact that the resurrected Jesus is your base or your place of solid of solidness you can stand on solid ground and you can face adversity why because no matter what the world throws at you no matter what the devil throws at you you serve a risen savior isn't that great Jesus is alive and you can face adversity let's have a look at it you may be facing adversity yourself this morning or you may have a friend or a relative or someone close to you who is facing adversity this morning, what would you say to them? Well, Paul gives us some steps for hopeful living. So let me just share with you this morning how to live hopefully. How to live hopefully in the face of adversity. Here's the first thing. Remember inspiring examples. If you're facing tough times, remember inspiring examples. Look at verse 29. What will uh, all those do who are baptised for the dead? Isn't this an interesting verse? What is Paul talking about? What What does he mean when he talks to the Corinthians and says that there are some of you there who have been baptised for the dead? 
Well, you'll be pleased to know that there are 30 to 40 interpretations of what that means. You'll also be pleased to know that we're not going to look at all 30 to 40 interpretations this morning. Otherwise, we'll be here till next year. Let me tell you firstly what it is not saying. Paul is not saying that it's okay for a Christian to get baptised for a person who died without Christ. Some people have interpreted it that way. They have said that uh, there were people at Corinth who were concerned about people who had died and didn't know Jesus, and so what they did was they got baptised on their behalf in order to get them saved. Now, that just completely undermines the gospel, doesn't it? Of course it does. The Mormons have interpreted it that way. That's why the Mormons are into genealogies because they actually go and trace the genealogies of just about everybody and they have what they call proxy baptism where they get baptised for people who have died so that they can all get into the Mormon church and be saved at the end of the the age. That's the basis of their theology. It's bad theology. And Paul, if he was was commenting on that, would have actually said, no, this is wrong, because notice he doesn't say we are baptised for the dead. He says, what about those who are baptised for the dead? Well, it's not about getting baptised for non-Christians. That's pretty obvious. The other possibility is that it's referring to Christians alive today who got baptised for Christians who had died but weren't baptised. You follow what I'm saying? So you're a Christian, come to Jesus, you get knocked over by a bus and you haven't had time to get baptised and so some people, the suggestion is they got a little bit concerned that they weren't baptised and so we'll get baptised on their behalf and that just makes sure that everything's right. Well, there's a bit of a problem with it, isn't there? Because baptism doesn't save you, does it? No, it doesn't. Only Jesus saves you. So there's a bit of a problem with it. Uh, Some writers will tell you that it's the most natural way of reading the text. And some people have suggested that maybe what Paul is saying is, look, the Corinthians were practising this and whilst Paul doesn't necessarily commend it, uh, he's not really interested in that. What he's saying was that if you do do that, it really just points out the resurrection. But there is another interpretation. As I said, we're not going to do all 30 or 40. Some people say that what this is referring to is people who have got converted... Uh, they, they have had a dead Chris, uh, they've had a Christian friend or a Christian relative and that person has died and since that person has died the person who is now alive looks back on their life and they're inspired by the life that they lived and ultimately it's led them to faith in Jesus themselves and so they've got baptised because of that dead person. Do you follow the argument? They have been inspired by the example of that person. That's the interpretation I'm going to take. And I'll tell you why. Because it fits my theology. (laughs) That's why I take it. I think it's a pretty good... And it is possible to read it that way. So it sits comfortably with me. It it talks in terms of... The baptism is not what saves you. That they're led to baptism because they've come to Jesus and it's based on the life of an inspiring person. Can you think... when When you're going through a tough time, can you think of people who have inspired you in their Christian walk? Some of you have got a person coming right to mind now. Uh, if you've been following the Lent calendar, the person that I wrote about was a guy called Wes Caddy. Wes Caddy, uh, I had the privilege of working with Wes for a couple of years. He was my senior pastor when I first went to Cairns. Uh, he's, what an inspiring man. He was in his mid-60s when I met him, 
and when we worked together for two years. And if you want to find out a bit more about the kind of character he was, you can read the Lent calendar. But let me just tell you a little bit about his story. Why does Wes Caddy inspire me? Well, it's kind of interesting. He was born on the stroke of midnight. Can you imagine? On the stroke of midnight on the 29th of February in a leap year. And so his parents, or his father said the next day, let's give the kid a break and make it the 28th of February. That way he'll get a birthday every year. That was the start of Wes's life. He suffered from the age of two dreadfully with asthma. When he was a young teenager, he was told... Uh, he, he lived in a little town, Port Ferry, where his parents owned the bakery. And there was a guy whose job was to follow behind the horse cart and clean up the manure that the horse used to leave. Wes was told at a young age that that was all he'd be able to do in life. And that stuck with him. In his mid-teens, he wonderfully was saved, came to know Jesus. He was a bit of a stirrer. Uh, we don't have time to go into all of that. But he was wonderfully saved and at 18 years of age, went off to Bible college to study to become a missionary. Six months later, he had to leave college because of his asthma. His health was, had broken down. At the age of 18, he was told by the doctors, your health will not allow you to uh, sustain the rigours of ministry, so you're washed up, you're retired at 18. So Wes took the advice and went and applied to the Aborigines Inland Mission, <laughs> who accepted him as a missionary and sent him out to a place called Peak Hill West in, in western New South Wales. And I remember him telling me the story. He would used to go and preach every Sunday night to three Aboriginal women who would always fall asleep during his sermon. And he would preach his heart out. One day, he got down on his knees and he spent a whole day in prayer. He just thought he was so discouraged. And he got down on his knees and he said, I spent a whole day in prayer seeking God and seeking his blessing on my ministry. Went back that Sunday night, preached my heart out, and he said two things happened. The ladies didn't fall asleep and two of them got converted. And that was the start. For the next 37 years, Wes Caddy served in Aborigines Inland Mission, serving Indigenous people in this country. It became known as Gubba Mang. He was uh, the white black fellow. That's what the name they dubbed him with. As I said, I met him when he was in his Baptist years. He is my inspiring example. I can tell you that that man's tenacity inspires me. I'm so looking forward to seeing Wes in heaven again. He'll be the guy with his hands raised high. He used to tell us in church, in a little conservative, or not a little, but a conservative Baptist church, where he'd be raising his hands back in the 80s, and he would say, you better get used to it. We're going to be doing it in heaven. Inspiring. Who's your inspiring example? When times are tough, who do you think of? Let's have a look at the next piece of advice Paul gives us. The next piece of advice that he gives us is be joyful in trials. Look at verse 30 and verse 31. I particularly want you to notice what he says in verse 31. He says, I die daily. Now, in my Bible, that's at the end of the sentence. Actually, in the Greek, it's the very first three words. And it literally reads, daily I die. The reason it's there in the first three verses of the sentence is because Paul wants us to understand that this is important. It gives it emphasis. He says, I die daily. Is he exaggerating? You might think, oh, come on, Paul, you're not dying every day just for serving Jesus. Is he exaggerating? No, he's not. No, he's not. Think back to what we've looked at over the last few years, the book of Galatians and the book of Philippians. Paul wasn't joking. Remember in Philippians last year, the Apostle Paul says what? For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. What did he say to the Galatian believers? 
It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul said, I die daily. I've experienced so much, he says, but I face uh, trials every day. Let me just give it to you. He gives a bit of an autobiography in 2 Corinthians. Listen to what Paul endured. And here's his point in just a moment. But this is what he endured. He was imprisoned repeatedly. He lost count of the times that he had been beaten. Think about that. He was scourged, which was an excruciating punishment, five times by his own people. He was beaten three times with rods and survived one stoning. He was shipwrecked three times and on one occasion spent a day and a night in the ocean. In his travels, he faced regular threats from the elements, wild animals, bandits, as well as people who violently opposed him and the message of the gospel. His physical health took a hammering and he often went hungry. And on top of it all, he carried the huge weight of the responsibility of the growth and well-being of the churches. Why did Paul endure that? He says, because Jesus rose. It's as simple as that. How do you explain this man who was so violently opposed to the Christian church and the message and to Jesus, whose life is completely transformed and turned around? It's the resurrection. And we're talking about the physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Not some spiritual resurrection, not some ghost that appeared, but the actual living, breathing body of Jesus. Paul himself, when he was put on trial, cried out to his accusers, I am on trial for the resurrection of Jesus. But what was his response? What was his response to all of these hardships that he faced because of his commitment to the gospel? Listen to what he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He describes himself there as like a fragile clay jar containing the great treasure of the gospel. And he goes on, he says, We are pressed on every side, we're crushed, we're perplexed, we are hunted down, we get knocked down, we are suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus. He actually describes it as we live in the face of death. And what does he say? We continue to preach. Why? Because we know, listen to it, that God who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and present us to himself together with you. And then he says it leads us to God's grace and as it reaches more and more people, there will be what? Great thanksgiving and God receives more glory. What is Paul saying? I have joy in the face of all my trials because Jesus rose from the dead. Are you doing it tough this morning? The risen Jesus is with you. And you can be joyful in it. Now, I don't know what that joy looks like. I go through my own tough times and I pray in those times, Jesus, I don't know what the joy looks like, but help me to find joy and thanksgiving in it. Here's the third piece of advice. This will surprise you. Beware of wombats. Beware of wombats. Did you know that wombats are vicious animals? How many of you believe me? Gee, that's not really... It's terribly supportive. Wombats are vicious animals. Let me read to you, true story. The wombat and its violent reign of terror on a Dubbo family. Now, you'll remember a country practice? Remember Fatso, the wombat? Poor old Fatso, he had a few hang-ups, didn't he? Well, this particular lady who lives in Dubbo, she was the lady who trained the wombats that played fatso in a country practice. And she had a wombat wander onto her uh, property, 
But she discovered, as the article says, that this particular wombat was out for blood. And so as the thing attacked her, do you know wombats, because you know how big they are, they can get up to 40 kilometres an hour. Now imagine being hit by one of those suckers from the side. Wombat charges you. You've got no hope. Well, this wombat charged her and attacked her, and she, as she described it, he was biting pieces of my leg and biting me up to my knees. I mean, they're not very high, so they might get up to my ankles, um, but they can do some damage. She had a daughter, Kim, this lady, who had broken her ankle. She rushed out because she could hear her mum screaming, found the wombat mauling her mum, so the wombat now attacked Kim with a broken leg and broke her leg again because it knocked her over, viciously viciously ripping into the back of her legs. Hey, this story gets better, because I want you to know that wombats are dangerous. Kim had a daughter, this is the granddaughter, and she heard all the commotion, so she came out, saw, as the writer says, that her grandma and her mum were under attack from a bloodthirsty beast. (laughs) So she grabbed a plank of wood and hit the wombat in an attempt to save her mother. The wombat then turned on her, knocked her over, started biting her legs, her thighs, her bottom, and she said, I was screaming for my life. He was in for the kill. He was totally in for the kill. And the grandma said that the wombat was so vicious that if it had got onto our faces, it would have bitten our noses off. And he comes, this is where watching TV is helpful. The daughter, this is the middle lady, grabbed the wombat by the ear and head and lay him on his back. And she learned that from Steve Irwin, the crocodile hunter. (laughs) She said she, she, she thought of that and that's what subdued the wombat. It didn't get very uh, good for the wombat after this. Two men helped hold the wombat down and another lady ran to grab an axe and that was the end of the wombat's reign of terror. <laughs> well, what do you do? The thing was attacking everybody. You're going to think those poor little wombats. Be careful. Why does Paul say beware of wombats? Look at what it says in verse 32. In Ephesus, I fought wild beasts. He's not talking about wombats. He's not talking about literal wild beasts. He's talking about human opposition. So when he talks about wild beasts, he's referring to his experiences in Ephesus. If you remember when Paul took the gospel to to Ephesus, there was an incredible turnaround in, in, in impact that the gospel made. People who had been blinded by the darkness of the occult, turned to Christ. And as they turned to Christ, they came and they took all their magical books and they burnt them in a huge bonfire. Ephesus was the centre of the worship of Diana. The Ephesians believed that the image of Diana had fallen out of heaven and landed in their city. And so they built a temple to Diana, which was a fertility cult. Again, occult-based So you've got this strong spiritual stronghold and you've got a bunch of silversmiths who are also making a profit out of the worship of Diana. They built little statues of Diana and they would sell it to people. That was their income and their trade. All of a sudden, now that the gospel has come in and people are burning their magical arts and their books, the silversmiths are threatened. And so they create a riot and there's a riot in the town, a massive riot that goes on for two to three hours in rebellion and accusing Paul and others of uh, damaging their trade and also dragging down the worship of Diana. Paul says, you know what happened in Ephesus. He was there for about two and a half years. I fought wild beasts. People so violently opposed to the gospel, it was like they were tearing us apart. How did Paul respond? Paul, when you read his resume, regularly was attacked 
by wild beasts. Listen to how he describes it towards the end of his ministry in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He describes how he's on his own as he's there in prison, believing that the future for him is that he's going to be taken home to be with Jesus. He talks about how others have been sent away. He talks about some who actually deserted him. He talks about Alexander the coppersmith. He said, he did me much harm. But, but listen to the confidence of Paul. He's alone. He has been uh, left and abandoned by many people. This is what he says in terms of Alexander. The Lord will judge him for what he has done. And then Paul goes on and says this. The first time I was brought before the judge, no one came with me. Everyone abandoned me. But then notice what he says. This is how Paul responded to adversity and to wild beasts. But the Lord stood with me. And notice what he says. I find this fascinating. The Lord stood with me and gave me strength. Now, what I find interesting about that, it wasn't just that God stayed with Paul and gave me strength. He said he gave me strength that I might preach the good news in its entirety for all the Gentiles to hear. Aren't you impressed with this man? It's not just that God stood with him. It's not just that God gave him strength for the moment, but he gave me strength and stood with me so that I might continue to preach. Paul was gripped by the message of the gospel. He was gripped by the resurrected Jesus. In the face of adversity, beware of wild beasts. Here's the next piece of advice that Paul gives us. Forget YOLO. Look at the second part of verse 32. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Do you see what Paul is saying? I would do none of this if the resurrection wasn't true. There's no point. And he said, in fact, if the resurrection is not true, if Jesus was not raised, if we are not raised, he said, then we may as well just live it up now because he said, you only get one chance in this life, you only go around once, live it up because when you're dead, you're dead. A doctor that uh, was uh, looking after Karen around, uh, in, leading up to the birth of our first uh, child, our daughter, our eldest daughter, great guy, went in with, uh, into his office on one occasion with Karen uh, not long before the birth of our first child. And I noticed a little plaque on his desk that said, when you live, live in clover, because when you're dead, you're dead all over. And he saw me looking at it, and he said, and he knew that I was a minister, and he looked at me and he said, that's just a little philosophy of mine. He said, that's the philosophy of a lot of people. You may as well live it up now and get everything that you can out of life now. Drink, eat, be merry, do all you can at this point because when you're dead, it's all over. You only go around once. My dad used to say that. You only go around once, may as well live it up. Paul says, if we are not raised from the dead, then that's a perfectly legitimate philosophy to live by. He's actually quoting the prophet Isaiah and Isaiah was actually castigating the people of Judah calling them to repentance. God is calling through the prophet, the people of Judah to repentance and to mourning for their sin. And Isaiah says, instead, he said, there is gaiety and gladness, killing of cattle, slaughtering of sheep, eating of meat and drinking of wine. Let us eat, drink, uh, for tomorrow we die. Paul is saying, if there's no resurrection, it's all over, you may as well live it up. Go for it. As I said, it's a philosophy of a lot of people and it's, it's expressed by this term YOLO. Some of you will be familiar with it. You only live once. That philosophy annoys the life out of me. And it particularly annoys me when I hear Christians using it. Folks, we have a bigger picture and a bigger perspective to live for than YOLO. 
And in the face of adversity, when things are really tough, it would be so tempting to say, you know what, I'm just going to give up and do it my way. I'm saying to you this morning, it's worth it. It's worth it. Those sacrifices that you make for Christ. Think, think about giving. Let, let's not, we can understand giving to a charitable cause or something that moves our heart, but let, let's just think about giving to church. I hope the treasurer isn't going to sack me for saying this. What is the point of giving to church? What benefit do you get? Think about it. But God asks us to give, doesn't he? Hmm. Gauging by the faces out there, I'm not sure how this is going over. I'm just, what I'm saying is that part of the, of, the, of the discipline of the Christian life is we are called to give to God's work. And people outside in the world think to themselves, that's crazy that you would give 10% of your income or any of your income to the church. Why would you do that? Think about it. Why do we do it? I hope that it's because we're not doing YOLO, but because we see that there is, a, there is a bigger perspective, that we give to God's work because we want to see God's kingdom expanded. That we don't, I hope we don't give to God's work because the Bible says so and because we should do 10%. If you know what I'm saying, that's important. But what I'm saying is I hope that our motivation for giving or whatever we do in Christian service is because we have a bigger perspective of the kingdom and the king that we serve. And he's a resurrected king. You think the sacrifices you make, sometimes the adversity you experience, you're wondering, is it all worth it? Paul says, it's worth it because Jesus rose. Here's the next piece of advice. Walk with the wise. Look at verse 33. Don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts, bad, uh, corrupts good morals. He's actually quoting a pagan playwright by the name of Menander. He was well known to the Greeks and this, he was such a well-known playwright, this was a quote from one of his plays, he was so well known that this had become a proverb amongst the Greeks. Now that's really startling and really powerful because Paul is talking to Greek Christians who would know this quote and effectively what Paul is saying is he's using their own a poet, their own playwright against them to say, you know what this guy said, even he recognises that bad company corrupts good morals. Even he says it. It's not just a Christian principle, although you find it in Old Testament Jewish wisdom, that great proverb, Proverb 13 verse 20, walk with the wise and become wise, associate with fools and get into trouble. So it's well known in other areas. It's certainly a Christian principle but here he's quoting a Greek a non-Christian to Christian Corinthians and it's a huge rebuke he's saying even non-Christians recognize this so he's saying to them get your act together start living what you believe are you going to live with people who support you or drag you down folks when you're going through a tough time what sort of person do you want supporting you do you want someone who's going to drag you down and focus on all the negatives and focus on all the things that are going wrong? Or do you want someone who's going to support you through it? Someone who's going to encourage you to continue to keep your focus on Jesus? Of course, that's the sort of person you want. Why? Because bad company corrupts good morals. 
You want people who are going to support you. As the proverb says, Proverbs 14.7, stay away from fools for you won't find knowledge on their lips. It's pretty damning. When you're going through a tough time, get people around you who are going to encourage you to be Christ-like. Next piece of advice, live consistently. I liked the translation that Margot read from because it really brings out the bluntness of what Paul says in verse 34. Mine says, become sober-minded. It actually is more like, wake up out of your drunken stupor. That's actually what Paul is saying. Wake up, you drunken fool. Get your mind sober and stop sinning. Look what he goes on and says. Because some of you are living like you have no knowledge of God. The word is agnosia, which gives us the word agnostic. Now that's powerful. Paul is saying you're living like you have no knowledge of God at all. Not about head knowledge, but you're living like you don't know God at all and your life, your life betrays that. You're not living as resurrection people. Now, you might think that's a bit harsh to accuse the Corinthians of that, but have a look back through the book, read it through. What were the Corinthians doing? Well, they certainly weren't keeping their focus on Jesus. They certainly were living as people with no knowledge of God, as if the resurrection meant nothing. You're living like an agnostic. Live consistently with what you believe. The resurrection transforms it all. So let's bring it all together. What is the take-home truth today? Here it is. Resurrection people can live with hope in the face of adversity. That's your take-home truth. Resurrection people can live with hope in the face of adversity. Are you doing it tough this morning? Are you facing an uncertain future? Are you facing adversity? Jesus on this Palm Sunday, calls us to live as resurrection people. He uses that term in one of his answers to the religious leaders who were questioning him about the resurrection. And he uses the term the sons of the resurrection, or another way of looking at it is the sons and daughters of the resurrection. Live differently, if you read the parable carefully, if you read the answer carefully. So Jesus calls us on this Palm Sunday, as he exemplified on that Palm Sunday 2,000 years ago, to live as resurrection people, to live in the light of the resurrection, in spite of the adversity, in spite of the things that are going on in your life, live as resurrection people. So let me just give you some rounding off points. How do you live as a resurrection person in the face of adversity? Allow the resurrection to grip your soul. I would say allow the resurrection to grip your soul. I have been incredibly blessed personally going through this passage of scripture, 1 Corinthians 15, over the last several weeks, looking at it, thinking about it, writing about it, preparing to preach on it. It has done my soul good to know that our Jesus is risen from the dead. It's not that I didn't know that before, but it's come to me in a fresh way that we serve a risen saviour, folks. And I'll tell you who's impressed me the most, if you haven't picked it up already, it's the Apostle Paul, that man is truly legendary. Allow the resurrection to grip your soul. Are you facing wild beasts? Feel like people are tearing you apart at the moment? Jot this down. Go home and read Psalm 27. And read Psalm 26 as well, because that will be helpful. Third thing, say no to YOLO. Say no to YOLO. Do you know that you are invited to the greatest wedding feast ever? Ever? 
Jesus preached about it. We're told about it in Revelation. And we, it's, it's all about God throws out that invitation to everybody. So if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, why are you saying no to the invitation? And if you want to know how to say yes to the invitation, to be a part of that great banquet that is before us, come and talk to me after the service. I'd love to share with you about the risen Jesus. Say no to YOLO. Live consistently with what you believe. Don't live like an agnostic. Don't live like there's no tomorrow because there is a big tomorrow waiting for you, a grand future. But here's the final thing. Remember inspiring examples. And I can think of no better, no greater, no more inspiring example than our Lord Jesus this morning who entered Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday and as he entered, knowing what lay before him, went forward with hope and with joy because he knew the Father would raise him from the dead. Let me read to you how the writer of Hebrews expresses it. And with this, we close this morning and we will pray. If you forget everything else, don't forget this. This is why Jesus endured the cross. This is why Jesus took upon himself the sin of the world. The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, Let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Note this, note what the writer says, because of the joy awaiting him. He endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honour beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. After all, you have not yet given your lives in your struggle against sin. May those words bless you this morning. Shall we pray? Let's pray. Father, as we sit here and as I stand here and lead these folks in prayer, the words of that great old hymn come to mind. I serve a risen saviour. He's in the world today. And the chorus that says he lives, he lives. Father, thank you for our risen saviour. Thank you that we've been reminded through song this morning. We've been reminded through your word. We've been reminded through the things we've been talking about here. Father, in the face of adversity, we can live as resurrection people. And so I pray for all of us this morning that you will renew and revive within us the great hope that comes because we serve a risen saviour and we can live hopefully in the face of adversity no matter what we are facing at this moment. You are with us. Your son is alive. May we live as resurrection people. In his name we pray. Amen.